from Small Data Industries. This is Art and Obsolescence. I'm your host, Cass Fina-Radden, and on this show, I chat with people that are shaping the past, present, and future of art and technology. Well, folks, the show is back from hiatus. I hope you didn't miss me too much. And we're kicking things off with something quite different, something that has been almost three years in the making. More than a few of you that listen to this show are likely familiar with an organization called Voices in Contemporary Art, aka VOCA. They're a nonprofit that has, for many years, done really important work in training arts professionals on how to conduct good artist interviews. And they have an ongoing talk series where they host sometimes live and sometimes recorded artist interviews. Well, way back in 2021, VOCA had a call for proposals for the Boston area, and it sparked an idea that requires a bit of backstory and some personal lore. So, a long time ago, in my last two years of art school for undergrad, I started spending some time in Providence, Rhode Island. I spent a summer there living between, you know, years in school, and eventually I moved there after graduating. Uh, A bunch of friends from college were moving there, and I had just been magnetically drawn to the art and the music coming out of the incredible underground scene there. For a small city, Providence had this incredibly dense concentration of artists and musicians, and there was what seemed like acres upon acres of these decaying post-industrial spaces, some abandoned, some lived in, and varying levels of legality, some served as underground venues, and it was also the kind of place that was affordable enough that as an artist you could cobble together a living from part-time jobs that left enough free time to, you know, sort of do your thing. So it was just really this buzzing beehive of activity with an incredible show, be it art or music or both, every other night, and incredible bands constantly coming through town, playing shows in one of the various quote-unquote venues that someone or some group of folks transformed into a special gathering space, one that may or may not be there next year or next month for that matter. Impermanence was sort of a subtext amidst all of this. By the time I'd moved to Providence, there had already been a whole generation of artists and collectives that were displaced by greedy real estate developers, and it was sort of understood that many of these special places that were central to the artistic community as people's homes or studios or gathering spaces, that some of this was just almost something too good to last. Amidst all of this, though, there were a handful of artists here and there that would sort of see the writing on the wall and would be able to cobble together something a little more official and a little more lasting. One of these places that was very special, that really stood out, was a place established by two artists who realized that if they wanted to make a space for others and not risk it being taken away from the community, that they needed to get their shit together and do something a bit more official and legal. So in the year 2000, artists Xander Marrow and Pippi Zornoza joined forces and founded the Dirt Palace a feminist art space and residency program that has served as an incubator for hundreds of feminist artists and is not only still around today 20 years later, but is absolutely thriving. When I first arrived in Providence, the Dirt Palace played actually a big role in my starting to find my own sense of community and place. 
Although their underground credentials are unquestionable, they were accessible. They had a website and you could just email them. And so that's just what I did. I offered to build them a new website, which at the time, you know, was something you kind of did by hand still. And (laughs) this was kind of my sneaky go-to way of getting to know artists who I thought were cool. So in exchange for that, Xander taught me how to screen print. And it sounds like a small exchange, but for scrappy, socially awkward me living in a city for the first time in my entire life, it really meant a lot. So when I saw Voca's call for interviewing artists in the Boston region, I just knew I had to pitch the idea of interviewing not one, but two artists, Xander and Pippi. It was such a treat to revisit Providence and reconnect with Xander and Pippi so many years later to really get the full story of their wonderful legacies. So for the next three episodes of the pod, we will be listening in on these conversations, which took place a year ago in Providence. Today, we'll be visiting with Xander in her studio. Next month, we'll be doing the same with Pippi. And both of these talks focus on their work as individual artists and their creative work. So then finally, we will wrap things up in April with a conversation with both Xander and Pippi focused on their decades of collaboration and community building. Now, a heads up, this episode is going to sound quite different from what you are used to. It's recorded in a different location, different kind of microphones, but most importantly, it was actually edited for video. So if you are so inclined, you can head on over to Voca's website. I'll put the link in the show notes to watch this interview, a first for the podcast. Also, if you can truly not wait to hear the next two conversations, all three interviews are already up on Voca's website, so you can binge all three of them all at once. Anyway, enough for me. Let's teleport to Providence and visit with Xander Marrow. So we are here at the Dirt Palace today on this rainy December day in 2022 with Xander Marrow. Thank you so much for joining me today for this interview with Boca. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the reasons I love doing these artist interviews is it's a, it's a real opportunity to sit down with an artist who I've known for a time, but there's a lot of gaps in your story that I'm not familiar with. And um, for you, one of the things is um, really just your origin story, you know, uh, in terms of where you grew up and uh, what sort of creativity were you exposed to? And yeah. Yeah. So I um, was born in D.C., uh, but most of my childhood was spent on Long Island, which I hated from the very start. Um, but uh, my mom, um, uh you know, originally had uh, been teaching pattern design. She started out in fashion. Um, so exposed to like the world of fashion at a really young age, um, go to like fashion shows with her and like hand out little perfume samples and stuff like that and be the kid like near the runway. Um, so maybe that was like my earliest exposure to, um, to culture. Um, and yeah, but then on Long Island, my mom, started um getting kind of serious about uh, craft stuff she grew up in vermont and there was maybe the sort of exoticism of like you know um being kind of from the country and <laughs> and so it was like making wreaths and selling stuff at craft fairs 
and she would dress me up in an outfit that matched hers and, um, you know, like exploit uh, my seven-year-old cuteness in a matching whatever Victorian outfit to help sell sachets and um, cut and pierce lampshades and uh, whatever. Um, and then eventually she opened a store where she taught like craft classes in the basement. Um, so stuff like stenciling, like all of the worst like 1980s home decor um, kind of movements she was at the like uh, epicenter of. So I spent a lot of time around yeah, um, stenciled ducks with briefcases and that kind of like aesthetic. <laughs> um, uh, you know, by the time I was in high school, it was pretty and actually pretty early on. It was like I was always the art kid. Right. Like I was the kid who like the computer teacher was like, uh, do you want to learn this? paint program and not go outside for lunch and I was like yes I don't want to play soccer I want to you know like sit inside and learn how to use the computer for art or whatever so relatable (laughs) (laughs) so it's interesting because it sounds like with your your mother's craft practice it was giving you exposure not just to all of these hand skills and crafts and sewing but also being an entrepreneur, it sounds like your your mom was like a real businesswoman. Yeah, I think that's um, that's like a perceptive insight. She was a total hustler, and she always like uh, brought me along with her hustles, which I I thought was pretty fun up to a point. At some point, like the outfits that she'd make me wear, I was like, <laughs> I got to put my foot down. Yeah. <laughs> no more like no more matching uh, wreaths on my head or whatever. Yeah. So. Eventually, you find your way to Providence, Rhode Island as a student at Brown. And I'm curious what led you there and what yeah. were you studying? And Yeah, so um, so I really just hated Long Island. I wanted to get out pretty early on. I figured that studying and being a nerd was the most efficient way to get out. So yeah, when I was thinking about where to go to school, visited Providence, and I was just like, this is where I want to be. I knew like pretty right away. So it was more of that, more Providence than um, the institution, I think, that really drew me. Um, but yeah, I applied early and it was the only school I applied to. And um, yeah. So did you, when you were entering school, did you have any conception of yourself as an artist yet at that point? I mean, I think I thought of myself as an artist pretty early on. Mm-hmm. Like it was, you know, like I said, I was the, I was the kid that the, the, teachers would be like you want to draw the picture for the yearbook or you know like whatever the things are that like early on designate the like the weird arty kid um and so um, I think I've been like wearing that identity for a pretty long time um so so that yeah so then when I got to school though um I it felt weird to kind of be thinking about doing art stuff with RISD so close. So, um, so I really kind of leaned, uh, into theory and, um, and like away from the art department. I just wasn't that into the art department. Maybe I was kind of a snob about it. Just didn't seem that interesting. Whereas like the, um, the theory stuff in the modern culture and media department was really interesting and exciting. So I, that's just sort of like what I threw myself into during that time. Yeah pretty legendary program too yeah Yeah. and um and the people who were teaching like film and video there were just super inspiring and um tony Cox and um leslie thornton i both see as like mentors who were just gave so much like 
time and care to my mm. development. So I sort of leaned into doing film and video stuff because I felt like they were the most interesting people to work with or they were the most supportive. And yeah. So how did your your practice and your work and just the things that you were making evolve during those years and develop, you know, as you come closer to graduating and just living the artist's life in Providence? Yeah. Um, yeah. So there was sort of a, a crew of folks, both between Brown and RISD, who were making movies. And, um, you know, making movies is interesting because it involves a lot of organization. Um there's like a management component uh uh there's like a technical component um and yeah I feel like we just um were totally obsessed we were like developing film in the bathtub um uh like lots of like shop talk and and just like living it day to day um you know finding like jobs in like associated fields I moved into working at a film lab pretty quickly um, because I walked in there and like asked about chemistry and they were like you're gonna develop film at home and then later they were like you want a job (laughs) (laughs) so that happened pretty pretty naturally um yeah and there were definitely like a few other really um like peers that became um, really critical. I think we all became really critical to each other's development. Um, like Lisa Oppenheim is still a really close friend. And I think we really kind of grew up together as artists in really different ways. Um, and then like Raphael Lyon, as much as we drive each other crazy, we, um, really, I think influenced each other in a lot of, a lot of ways along our path. And then, um, and then as I became closer to people who were going to RISD, um, it was just like a, like an avalanche of energy and um yeah and you know but pretty early on also when I was at school I had friends who were from Providence I never went home in the summers I worked in town so um you know kind of from going to like music shows I quickly became friends with um folks who you know had kind of had roots here um one of my close friends uh, Matt Obert wrote the like scene maggot column for the underground newspaper Hmm. and um and we ran around together for a really long time um so you know just like going to shows and you know every show every every night um so that's a great segue because one of my questions for you was you know there's um something we've talked about in providence sometimes for students um you know who are at brown or RISD there can be sort of this invisible fence (laughs) in a way that's you know some some students stay within the school environment and like that community and don't really branch out into the local art scene whereas others do and they've become integrated into it and they live here and I mean here we are so many years later yeah so I'm curious for you um what were the first things that were kind of pulling you over to this side of town yeah I mean I think like both for Pippi and I and so many of the folks that do it's I think it's music a lot you know it's like we were young people who came up um being really involved in music subculture and so um so coming to a new town it was really normal to kind of get involved with that and that was largely um yeah all over the place downtown west side um and then you know relationships formed with people who were older younger you know like quickly there was like a crew from Woonsocket that I became friends with you know so it's just I think that was um was sort of the the through line into kind of having deeper relationships with people who were who were from the area so I know that 
puppets and puppetry has uh, really been a major part of your work over the years. Um, so I'm curious to know more about that. I mean, where did that really begin for you? Um, yeah. So, yeah. So as a kid, I did puppet shows for other kids' birthdays parties so I was really young it was like again another like nerdy kid thing um and I think some of that you know is like being shy but still being kind of like a ham and performative it gives you a way to like you know goof off and make people laugh but not have to do that like in a like really embodied way so it was just something that was like so intuitive and natural for me and also like I had I love to like I love dolls and playing with dolls and making like weird little figurines and stuff. So, um, so it was just like a fairly obvious thing to kind of be, to gravitate towards. And then I think as I started to learn about some of its history, um, that became really exciting kind of thinking about like, like I think when, um, bread and puppet came on my radar, that was like a whole other universe of like, wow, like this, you know, these are used in social movements and used in all these ways to be really engaged with the world and reflect the world. Um, and then obviously like, you know, Spank Meyer and like, you know, kind of the more surrealist puppets were like a real, um, like a magical thing to discover. So, um, so, and then, you know, so then it's something I started doing maybe when I was still in school and then, there was just a moment when it uh, there was kind of like a lot of energy around um, kind of doing underground puppetry. Um, uh, Miss Pussycat from New Orleans was like an icon, you know, was like bringing it to rock clubs. And it was like it seemed possible to do this mode of performance outside of, you know, outside of even theater venues. And um, and that felt really exciting. So, yeah, yeah. So it's it's so interesting to hear you mention Jan Schwenkmeier. Um, you know, the name has never come up in conversations we've had in the past, and I guess I've never thought about his work and thinking about your work. But now that you say it, I can see those those seeds and influences. That's really fascinating. So I'm curious for you know for viewers who aren't familiar with your your moving image work and your puppetry work. I'm curious if you could maybe talk about a few pieces and paint a picture for us. Yeah, um, one thing that uh that happens with a lot of the puppetry work is i'm clearly more interested in crafting the puppets than like totally nerding out on exactly how they're jointed or how they move so sometimes they're really like rickety um but uh but there was a time especially when we started the dirt palace when i was like okay i'm gonna get out all of my angst about like the difficulty of collaborative living by making these short vignettes that are about um, you know, a hypothetical group of women who all live together. Um, so there are a couple of like, there are a couple of classics that, um, you know, that are puppet versions of, you know, I'm not saying what I went through, but there's one um, that I feel like still resonates today. That's about dishes where all these women are living together in this house and someone's really mad because nobody's doing the dishes and they start hiding dishes in the beds and then the puppets break all the dishes and then they party and it's, um, yeah, and I, I would do them with live soundtracks too, just because I was working with film and um, marrying soundtrack to um, to film is just a really expensive and crazy process. So, um, but I could project the film I was working with and then um, make the soundtrack live. So I would play drums and um, you know uh, could create a clatter and commotion for um, yeah that would stand in for the soundtrack um, while doing all of the different voices, which was really fun. So speaking of live soundtracks, um, 
I know that uh, a sort of event uh, or a series, I don't really know what the thing to call it would be, but a thing that you organized over the years that really became an important, uh, I think, fixture in the community was called Movies with Live Soundtracks. So it sounds like this really flourished into a a thing that you uh, organized and and curated. Um, So I I guess, how did that uh, emerge and and what was that? Yeah, um, so that came out of loving cinema loving like people gathered together to watch movies loving kind of like diy and home movie like having these memories of like super eight you know neighborhood gatherings um but also really being kind of like jealous in some ways of the energy around music and musical performance and just how that Mm. could be such a like visceral um energizing kind of experience and um And so wanting to kind of bring these things together and merge them. And it was great because it gave people who were, you know, kind of coming from the movie side an opportunity to experiment with performance and doing live things. But it also gave an opportunity for people who were mostly musicians to kind of dabble with um, or try out or test out filmmaking or working with video. Um, So I would do them every other month. And it was really my like kind of where I cut my teeth and organizing because, you know, getting 10 there would usually be about 10 different um, films that would be shown. So, you know, sometimes that would be like four, you know, it'd be a lot of artists that I'd be organizing. And I learned like pretty quickly, like all of the like, okay, you got to call people like you get them to sign up a month ahead of time. And then you call them two weeks ahead of time. And then you call them again a week ahead of time. And then you double check. And then someone's definitely going to flake out, but you're going to hear the story about their dog and, you know, like whatever is going on. And it's just, it was like really like um, like a fast track way of learning like how to roll with the punches in terms of working with artists and getting people excited to do something all together. Mm. Um, so, and just the things that people would come up with because they were allowed to work outside of their usual kind of um, uh, comfort zone was so exciting. And I realized that that's something that I really love is encouraging artists to kind of like, uh, play with things that they do have some comfort with, but also that kind of stretch their um, stretch what they usually do. And that that is something that I, I feel like I'm still doing and still enjoying kind of, yeah, working. Yeah, it's it seems like a really incredible, almost like third space that you created that it, it wasn't just film, it wasn't just music per se, and it could create an opportunity for artists in the community who maybe had an interest in making music but were like Mm -hmm. but but i don't know how to write songs it's like yeah but i can like bang some things around while there's puppets on stage yeah yeah Um, exactly yeah so what were the material um just uh realities of that were people lugging around 16 millimeter projectors or video projectors what were people showing so i would always um bring the project both projectors which it was easier to have a 16 millimeter projector than than like a video projector video projectors were still really expensive whereas like Mm. 16 projectors were like in the garbage you know you could find them like on street corners um and a pa which was the kind of the tricky part um and i would do it but at a different location each time and that was really exciting to me because it kind of brought me into working with a different community by kind of switching up where it would be um so yeah so that was kind of the joy and um you know it was also really you know there was there's always a million young artists who will sign up to do a weird thing but the thing I realized is that it takes more energy to kind of convince people who are more um, like 
in their practice in certain ways. So I really, but I also realized that I really love kind of like mixing generations and kind of mm-hmm. trying to stir things up in terms of like who, um, who does things together. So, mm-hmm. um, so some of the, um, things people put together, uh, there was one person who got three different landlines. This was pre cell phone and did uh, live prank phone calls to a loop <sighs> of uh, an animation of a dog running around a garden. And it was the old prank phone call of like, your dog is in my garden. Um, and, uh, they kept making the prank phone calls until someone said, I don't have a dog. And then the line is like, I don't have a garden. So dumb. But this is what, you know, kids used to do in the old days. <laughs> um, and then uh, someone had it brought a dog that talked and that was their soundtrack. Another incredible one. Um, that's how I met Richie Allen. He was like a old local filmmaker. Um, oh, what else? There were so many good ones. Uh Someone who did portraits of all of the church bells and then just stood straight faced saying bong, bong, bong every time. Like it seemed like the church bell should be ringing. Uh, that might not translate in storytelling as well, but <laughs> someone who just saying like bong over and over. It was great. Um, so it sounds like some of the most interesting ones for you were these like kind of deadpan humor. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Like experimental performance ones. A hundred percent. That's yeah. interesting. And then Ben Coonley, someone who I really like our relationship, we knew each other, but Ben would like, every time I do one, he would be like, I am coming for this. I'm going to, you know, and he, there were these like ponies that are toys that like you press their ear and they say like, I want you to brush me. <laughs> he, would, like, he would like, concoct these like elaborate um, narratives around like this talking toy pony that children are supposed to ride really good that's awesome well this is kind of getting at one of the interesting things about i think your practice and also pippi's practice and i think a lot of folks in providence is that you know there are no genres or disciplines like just to call you interdisciplinary would be i think a massive understatement um you know and I, and I think one of the examples of that is the fact that you found a way to, um, you know, it, it, as your friends and colleagues were going on tour with their bands, uh, I know that eventually you went on tour with your puppet show. Um, so I'm curious, what what was that like? Where were you performing? Um, yeah. What were the venues like? Yeah, I mean, it feels like that was such a formative experience and also kind of a disaster, but also kind <laughs> of amazing, you know, so... Um, so I was touring with Becky Stark, who um, has kind of flowered into a career using the name of her alter ego from that show. It was um, I played a character named Lady Longarms and she played um, Lavender Diamond. And we were two women who had office jobs. But like it slowly is uncovered that our job is to like, um, like create world peace, hmm. which sounds really like hippie. And it was like we were just singing songs about like peace peace on earth and uh but but there was also a character named madame von temper tantrum who was like really mad about everything um sometimes it would be like at a noise show or a punk show and then sometimes it would be at a church basement and there was like a a devil puppet and we'd be like oh no are they going to be mad about the devil puppet or um uh we got accidentally booked as a children's show and basically run out of carborough north carolina uh yeah north carolina it was a nightmare it was really bad becky got like she had an allergic reaction to the stress all over her face. It was terrible. But then we kind of told that story at the beginning of each of the shows and that we processed through it. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was also about um, 
it was like loosely based on inspired by the work of um, Paul Lapoli, who's like a visionary artist who has these ideas about these um, futuristic art history movements. So we were talking about the Baharoque, which was his moment when, um, you know, when kind of everything comes together in terms of performance and um, and craft. And um, yeah, so it was a little bit like, you know, it was like the line, there was a line between it being like really um, like goofy and a little bit like heady and yeah, all those things. And we wore hot pants. <laughs> <laughs> So. That's incredible. Yeah. And how did how did the tour do? Were you making gas money every night? Yeah, it yeah. was like it was. Um, yeah, like I said, highs and lows. Like there would be sometimes where we'd be like, mm, "That was cool." Slept on a dog bed and performed for two people, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and nights where it would be like, "I can't believe all those people came to see us and wanted to do another performance." Or you know, so it was just a mix, and um, and yeah, it was at just such a different time where you would cold call people on the phone and ask them to set you up a show and you'd have no idea what you were getting into. There was no GPS. You had to like actually use maps. And, um, but yeah, just what I learned through that experience, I feel is like so formative and also collaborating with Becky, who, um, is just such a like force of nature. And I feel like there's a lot of, a lot that's really analogous in terms of like how we approach, um, very different kind of crafts. Like she's like an incredible, she's an incredible, incredible performer. So uh, live performance of your, your moving image work uh, or screenings, I know haven't been the only venue and space for your film work. Uh, and at a certain point you began branching out into doing more like installation based work uh, in a sort of gallery environment. So I guess I'm curious, what were your first pieces where that began to happen? Yeah. Um... Maybe it was at the Decordova, and I have to be honest. Should I be honest? Yeah. I, I really feel like part of it was that all of a sudden in Boston, there were, like, somebody made a bunch of loopers, which is, like, you know, the kind of technology for um, having 16 millimeter be um, connected to a projector so that it can keep running all the time. And, um, you know, a few institutions bought them, and then they were like, we can have artists do <laughs> film installations now. So I kind of feel like they were like, we have a new toy. Do you want to use it? Um, which, of course, yeah, which of course I did. Um, but, um, but yeah, like, so I think, you know, the, um, the experience of cinema and being, like, in space with people, um, experiencing, like, you know, all the things that... Um, watching something live near other people is, I think that's really important to me and I, that collective like watching. Um, but yeah, it occurred to me that that could happen on a small scale and be really intimate, hmm. um, and just be a different way to kind of move through, um, uh, like a museum space. So I would build these like, you know, and a lot of artists have done this, like build these like small spaces. It's stuff that's hard to imagine in pandemic realities where people, you know, kind of like, pack into a little mini movie theater and um, and kind of like experience um, cinema for like 10 minutes together. Um, so, yeah. So the piece that um, that I made for the Decordiva was called Born to Never Throw Anything Away. And it was, um, I think it's about a six minute and it's a, a combination of animation and um, like a technique where I'm shooting every object in a space, but just for like one twenty fourth of a second so that they, the, the objects sort of become alive because mm. they're moving so quickly. Um, and it's something I've done to document space a number of times. And now it feels like something you see all the time, just 
because of how technology has changed and people are taking thousands and thousands of pictures all the time and then they'll mash them up. But at the time it was, you know, not something you saw all the time. Um, and I was really into how you could kind of, um, uh, contrast objects and, uh, like kind of create a visceral feeling through that. Right. So it's like, you know, people go to action movies because they're on, like it puts them on this roller coaster. And I was thinking about, are there ways to do that through abstraction? Like, are there ways to, um, to kind of create visceral feelings from, watching movies that um that are not connected to content or that are just like mm. the pure kind of visual um uh information also with audio information as well so mm-hmm. um so that was a document of the house that my dad grew up in that my uncle had been living in for a number of years i mean his whole life actually um and kind of my realization when i went to document it that maybe hoarding runs in the family (laughs) that that it's something to kind of be on on the lookout for but also seeing you know like a lifetime's worth of objects um and family objects before you know before the house was sold so um yeah kind of my first foray into working with family history so as far as the installation of that piece is concerned when people see the the image of this the, yeah. the large wooden box with the projector on the outside is sort of a little micro cinema that you could walk inside of. Yeah, exactly. And then you see this weird movie. So we're not going to talk about Dirt Palace stuff too much right now. We're going to talk about that in collaboration with Pippi, your co-founder, of course. So we're going to sort of fast forward a few years uh, to... Um, I know that you spent some time uh, working in arts administration, um, not on your <laughs> on your own stuff, but uh, over yeah. at AS220. So I'm curious uh, to hear what that time was like for you. And um, did that give anything back to your um, more very you know personal practice of building the Dirt Palace and the Wedding Cake House? And all yeah, that? absolutely. For sure. Um, so, yeah, so that kind of came out of. Um, So I had been working at the film lab for a number of years. I didn't want to do that anymore. Um, Had like a little bit of a brief time when I was just doing art stuff because the RISD Museum bought some pieces. Um, And so I was kind of reconfiguring. And I was doing a lot of neighborhood organizing at the time, um, working with Onlyville Neighborhood uh, Association. And there was an organizer there who, um, you know, kind of blew my mind. She was just so good at all the like, bullshit like she could just you know spreadsheets everything and I was like wow if you can like get good at that stuff like anything can happen um so she was really an inspiration and kind of mentor in terms of like okay like just just don't be intimidated by you know logistics um so uh yeah so the job opened up at ASU 20 managing director which is sort of the person who does all the operation stuff and I applied and um you know, I think I was definitely the super wild card. Like there were, you know, folks who had had positions like that at um, much larger organizations who were just interested in ASU 20 because it's such a like radical model um, who had applied for the job and um, probably opposed to other people's better judgment. They ended up hiring me and um, <laughs> and I, you know, just learned a lot so fast and I'm so grateful. There are so many folks who were working there who you know, were just such, um, such forces in terms of thinking about how artists can, um, organize and build things for other artists and build an infrastructure for artists, um, 
you know, for figuring out ways for artists to exist in the world. So ASD 20 does like tons of affordable housing, breaking through some of the like mystery of how uh, property management and real estate works. That was a huge thing that I learned. Um, uh, And I also came to realize that like, you know, when you're doing whatever kind of work and if you're doing it around other artists and clearly for other artists, like it just makes like bullshit jobs kind of cool you know it's like I feel like I had these relationships with co-workers because I knew what they made and I was like could be involved with them on that way that mm. like there was automatically this kind of like trust and care for them as humans you know that mm. um yeah it was really uh it was pretty it changed some of my ideas about like desk jobs or office jobs <laughs> or certain kinds of labor. Did that feed back into your work in any way? You know, I know that for a lot of artists who, you know, work day jobs, sometimes it can trickle into the practice a little bit. For sure. I mean, it, it made me be super efficient with the time that I had in my studio. So mm. I was like, you know, I would get up at like six and, um, and come here to, you know, to work on projects and then ride my bicycle to the office at nine 30 and, um, and, you know, clock out at six and then do some reading and, you know, it just gave, it just made me be really efficient with my habits and ways of like working through things. Um, I'm trying to think if there are other ways that it impacted my practice. Um, well, I know there, there was like the drawing that was from around that time. Oh yeah. And I, you know, so it was a place where you could bring your own, own work into things too. Um, and it was, you know, it was great too. Like I would have like stuff I was working up on the walls where I worked and, there's a youth program and youth would come over and they'd be like, whoa, you drew that? And I'd be like, yeah, you can be good at drawing and good at math <laughs> and it's cool. Um, so, yeah, I feel like a place where you could really be like a whole person. Um, so, yeah, so there was, you know, so often you're kind of like enlisted to do fundraising stuff or put together, you know, um, just dragged into efforts that sometimes involve your creative creative mind as well so um so yeah so the image that uh there is was um asd20 uh has a dark room and the annual fundraiser for the dark room is a photo lottery and um i don't know how this happened but a local pizzeria uh, offered to like give us free advertising if we screen printed the pizza boxes <laughs> um so so would list different artists or often it became staff artists who were staff that would design and print the pizza boxes to get people to get the word out about the photo lottery. Um, you know, if I'm going to like make something about, there was this great photo of Pippi with pizza that I was like, well, this has got to be my pizza design. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, but yeah, I think, I think that also taught me that you can in certain places. And I think Bert who, um, was the founder of ASU 20 and a really great mentor to me. I think one of the things I learned from him is that it's like really not just okay, but it's actually for the best to like bring who you are and bring your creative self into that kind of work. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, just because you're meeting with bankers doesn't mean you have to like wear a suit, you know, it's like, you can, as long as you're smart and can like prove that you can do a thing, like you can come to the table as you really are. Um, so, yeah, that's such a great lesson. That's phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, Bert's such a like rings on every finger, you know, and just like he'll doodle through every meeting and then like everyone will be like, who is this guy? And then he'll say something so smart and everyone will be like, OK, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly knows what's going on. Yeah. So I know that 
in recent years, you've begun teaching at RISD, and I'm, I'm curious what that's been like to become an art professor, yeah. and um, how has that, if in any way, been influencing and feeding back into your work, um, both you know as an artist and a filmmaker, but also as you know a community builder and organizer. Yeah, you know, um, like I care a lot about teaching, and in some ways, I think the Dirt Palace came out of a like love of being in the process of sharing the educational experience and like kind of a lifelong way with others, not sort of, you know, getting away from the modality of like, there's one person who has the knowledge, but shifting towards something where it's like, we all have knowledge and we just need to keep growing together. So kind of shifting back to like, I am the expert was a little bit, a little bit weird. Um, but, uh, you know, I am a nerd and then I love art education. Like I think the potential for, and what I love about it, you know, the craft skills and sharing craft skills is like super fun. I can shop talk all day. I love to like be like, oh, you need to use a little bit of screen filler that, you know, like, <laughs> um, but I think critique when went done well, like learning how to um, receive feedback and how to like really intuit what somebody, what kind of feedback somebody needs is like, I think if, I think if that could be amplified across culture, we would be in such a better place. Mm -hmm. You know, like I think just that aspect of um, like how to learn by what peers are able to share um, is so, so valuable. So, um, so yeah, so I went into it mostly because um, the department head who asked me, I think is like really smart. She's another someone who I, another person who I'm like, this person just gets stuff done and is no bullshit. And, you know, like I mostly just wanted to work with her. Hmm. Um, so, um, but it was really great. I loved like um, kind of organizing. I was teaching a class in poster design, screen printing posters to in the illustration department. And, um, you know, I think I've cared about posters for a long time, but I've never been like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to spend a lot of time with like what the actual history of posters are. And, hmm. um, so getting to kind of like, I think integrating the the nerdy, like, here's here's the history of poster stuff into um, practical stuff was what was the most fun about that experience for me. Yeah. Well, and speaking of posters, this is something surprisingly we haven't touched on yet. <laughs> but yeah. of course, you know, uh, screen printing uh, for, you know, movies with live soundtracks, posters, but also many other events and concerts and shows has been a huge part of your creative practice over the years. Um, so I'm just curious, I guess, to hear um, how has how has that evolved for you over the years in terms of um, maybe styles and methods? And um, is this something you're still really active with these days? Yeah, I wish, I wish, you know, I feel like Providence in the nineties um, was like poster city. And that was so magical because it was how people communicated. And I, I just think that, you know, there's no, there's no going back to that in an era of social media, just being real about that. But I think mm. there's still, a great place for posters. Um, but, um, but yeah, it was just, you know, you'd wake up, there would be this like beautiful, um, image that you'd encounter in public space. Um, it would be kind of coded, but you maybe ha would have the secret to crack that code. You know, it was just like, it was such a like, um, powerful, um, kind of mode of subcultural communication. 
Um, and so when I saw that stuff, I was like, I was hooked immediately. I just, you know, like, um, had to figure out who had been making the posters and trying to figure out how to become friends with the people making the (laughs) posters and learning how to make posters. So it was, um, it was like really intoxicating and it was a really like a community thing. Like people taught each other and people pushed each other really outside of other kind of institutional frameworks. So, Mm -hmm. um, it felt really special and, um, you know, I think it's still, I think there's still a lot to be learned from, uh, like graphic communication, but, um, but it clearly like moves in different, different ways now. Mm. Um, are you still making posters? Um, I am more making things that look like posters, but that get sent in the mail. Ah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Prints. Cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> sometimes like last year I made a poster for winter. Like they're still sort of like advertising <laughs> something, but it's just maybe a little more conceptual. But, yeah. 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 I love that. <laughs> Is this thing happening in December? You yeah. should come check it out. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so, you know, your work over the years has been, uh, I was like hyper material, like so tangible and palpable. Um, and I gather that recently you've been getting much deeper into your writing practice. Um, and I'm curious to hear more about that. I also gather there's been a sort of, um, community or like internet component of that for you. Yeah. So, um, so that actually came out of the time of teaching during the pandemic, which was like, you know, young people were freaked out totally, you know, reasonably. Um, and so, um, so I started as a way to like, try to understand where they were at, um, making Google forms that asked a lot of like, asked a lot of questions, you know, just like, um, and some of them were playful and some of them were like hard questions. Um, uh, and the answers I got were so thoughtful, like the potential to use that space, um, to share something kind of intimate. Um, and then, you know, so I realized that you could set things up so that people could read each other's responses. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, during the pandemic that just, um, became something that made sense. So it was sort of like I was writing, um, like journal entries, but in like choose your own adventure style, um, that required participation, mm-hmm. um, but where everybody could read through what each other had to say. And, you know, the responses were much more elegant and beautiful than anything I had to say, but it just, it made me feel like I had this lifeline to others who were having similar experiences, experiences, but processing in them in other ways. Um, and, you know, a couple, I have a couple of friends who are writers who kind of spread things in their writer universe. So mm-hmm. that meant that like, yeah, there was just this like influx of like really cosmic and well-crafted responses that, Hmm. yeah I love that and I usually close my interviews by asking you know what's coming next for you what are you working on um but I know you're you're working on a book right now so um, I'm curious if you could share a bit about that with our viewers yeah so um so I started writing a book uh, which was like a really bad idea <laughs> because I had just been doing this project of renovating the wedding cake house, which was like a huge and overwhelming process with like, you know, not a lot of like, um, kind of gratification along the way. I mean, it was really exciting in a lot of ways, but taking on another project that's long and it doesn't, 
um, that doesn't kind of meet with audiences for a long time was maybe not the right uh, avenue to go down, but it's been really fun. Um, and it's sort of about construction. Um, it's maybe a coming of middle age kind of story. It's mm-hmm. about renovating a house and sort of in the process also renovating oneself and kind of like, you know, you're demolishing walls and also maybe demolishing things that you think that you know or assumptions you've had in earlier parts of your life. Um, uh, so yes, yeah, it's, it's the like, the framework is the house, but then there is lots of stories and um, stories about building the dirt palace since this was like where I learned to build things. Um, and maybe I'll draw some pictures for it. It's the next thing. Who knows if it will meet the light of day, but it's been really fun to work on. Like, I feel like it's like a splinter that I had to pull out or something, you know, it's just, yeah. It's really beautiful because in the whole lineage of your body of work over the decades, I can see this diaristic impulse and this, you know, sense of biography and depicting your your roommates (laughs) (laughs) covertly. Um, But it seems like that that barrier of fiction um, has gotten thinner and thinner and thinner to the point where now it's this um, not completely memoir, but kind of memoir. And that's that's really interesting that that, um, that's been this kind of trajectory over the years. That's a nice insight. (laughs) Great. Well, Xander, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down today. And I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation to dig into more of the history of where we are sitting right now and uh, the wedding cake house. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, dear listener, for joining me for this conversation with Xander Marrow. As always, if you like what you're hearing on the show, listener support is hugely important to making it all happen. You can always join us over at patreon.com slash artobsolescence. Or if you are interested in making a one-time tax-deductible gift through our fiscal sponsor, the New York Foundation for the Arts, you can do so over at artandobsolescence.com slash donate. And there you can also find the full episode archive, including full transcripts and show notes. And last but not least, you can always find us on social media at artobsolescence. Until next time, take care, my friends. My name is Cass Fina Radden, and this has been Art and Obsolescence. <laughs>